This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. We're on season two, episode 18. I'm going to have to figure out how we're going to decide when to move to season three, but maybe we'll do that September 1st. Anyways, this episode is good for continuing education credits. It's going to be good for life insurance credits in all jurisdictions. It will be good for no accident sickness credits, ANS in Alberta. It'll be approved for a professional development credit for those in IROC cycle 8. And it will be good for a financial planning credit from FP Canada. On this episode, we're going to have a discussion with Eric Ma. Eric is an accountant located here in Edmonton. He's at Gallo and Company, and he's here in his capacity as a Chartered Business Evaluator, uh, CBV. It's a specialist that I've wanted to have on the show for some time. And actually, I attended a session put on by John Gallo, who's the principal at uh, Gallo and Company. And we got to the topic of business valuation. I said, John, would you be interested in having your evaluator come on? I don't know if he jumped at the opportunity quite, but he was certainly happy to connect me. For those that don't know John, he's in Edmonton, and he does a ton of work with business owners. And one of the things that I would recommend for John in particular is he's got great expertise in the real estate space. And this is an unpaid endorsement, by the way. John doesn't know I'm doing this. But if you've got clients who are in the uh, residential real estate space, if they're using that as an investment property, and not just residential real estate, but I know that that's a place that John does have an avid interest. His firm, I think, is well-suited to provide good service to those clients. And it is an area where I find people do have a lot of questions. In fact, we just worked through one of these questions in some detail in one of our Certified Financial Planner core curriculum courses, where we had a whole conversation about whether or not it's beneficial to claim depreciation on a personally owned rental property. Spoiler alert, I generally think it is worthwhile to do so. And that went contrary to the advice that the client whose uh, scenario we worked through in that case was given. But it's always case by case, and you have to have somebody who knows your tax circumstances well in order to really boil down what the right answer to that question is. Okay, now we're going to hear from Eric about the process of taking a business through evaluation. And I just want to cover off a couple of terms here before we get into Eric's interview. We're going to give a little context for 
the sale of a business, which is a topic that comes up quite a bit as we work through the interview. And just to establish this, for those that have not had a client or maybe themselves gone through this, when somebody sells a business, what normally is going to happen here is there's going to be some shopping period. So there'd be some period where the business owner is dealing with maybe a business broker or a mergers and acquisitions professional, depending on sort of the size of the business. I would suggest for smaller businesses, maybe sub about $10 million of annual revenues that you're likely to deal with a business broker. And when you get into bigger businesses, then you're maybe going to deal with an investment banker or mergers and acquisitions professional team. So if we're dealing with those smaller businesses, what they might have done is gone to that broker and the broker might go and find them a number of interested parties. And those interested parties might then draft uh, what are called letters of intent. And it's not the only way this can be done. Sometimes we're going to have binding letters of intent or sometimes non-binding. But basically, once you do a letter of intent or LOI, you're often in a no shop or no compete period, which means the buyer or the prospective buyer has gone through some work to create an offer. And often that work is the kind of thing Eric would be involved in. So they've gone through some work to create an offer and then that offer will sort of lock you in for a period. So you might have two or three months where the prospective seller is not allowed to talk to anybody else about a possible sale of their business. And during that time, there's going to be a due diligence period. So the due diligence period is where the prospective buyer has access to really the full records of the prospective seller. They want to understand fully what they are buying. And this, by the way, is quite a bit different. You hear Eric talk about this in the interview where he talks about bigger companies having an easier time with valuation. Well, when we look at publicly traded companies, for example, the requirement for that due diligence is quite a bit different because publicly traded companies, which many of us are regularly buying, right? That's what happens when I buy a share of a company or when I own a mutual fund or exchange traded fund that buys a share of a company. With publicly traded companies, a ton of their information is already publicly available so you're not as concerned about due diligence there just because you have access to so much information before you even set foot down this path. But for private companies, you know, consider that they don't do quarterly public filings. There's no stock market valuation for their shares. We don't have a good handle on what their earnings might be. And that makes it quite a bit more challenging. And that's really the role that Eric fills. When you and I log into our whatever online trading accounts and we see how a share is valued, or if I just go to Google Finance or Yahoo Finance and see how a share is valued for a publicly traded company, there's a ton of work that has already gone into that, or really a ton of data that has already gone into that. And that's just then what the market sort of broadly values something at. That's the challenge for a certified business valuator is that person has to really do what the whole market does, what hundreds of millions of data points and hundreds of millions of prospective traders do when we buy and sell publicly traded securities. So that's what makes the role of the certified business valuator so interesting. 
in my opinion, is really they have this sort of massive weight on their shoulders to figure out what a company is worth. And it's something that for publicly traded companies is a lot more typical. Anyways, going back to the letter of intent then. So the letter of intent would typically lock you in for a period of time, during which time the buyer will have a more serious look at what they're looking to buy. It's common to set up a data room here. A data room is really just some sort of electronic repository where everybody shares information. There's going to be a lot of back and forth during this time. There's often strict confidentiality provisions associated with the letter of intent. Buyers generally don't necessarily want it known that they're out buying businesses. They may have concerns that if this is discovered that another buyer could potentially swoop in and offer a better offer, even though there's supposedly a letter of intent on the table, or the seller, and the seller really has the bigger concerns here in most cases. The seller may not want their customers to know that they are being sold. A lot of times relationships are so important and a customer might have concerns that that relationship would persist in the same manner post-acquisition. They may not want their staff to know. It is common in an acquisition that staff end up losing their jobs and you don't necessarily want your staff sort of living in fear for three or four months leading up to an acquisition. The conventional wisdom here is that sellers of businesses not tell their staff too much in advance about a prospective deal. And there are risks with it. You could tell your staff, for example, that you're selling your business and the buyer, for example, might decide at the last minute that they don't want to buy. In fact, I was just listening to a podcast this morning where a prospective seller changed his mind right near the last minute and his staff was sort of in on the whole deal. They knew what was happening. Now, he had been very transparent right from the beginning and that's less of a concern. That podcast, for those who care, is Built to Sell Radio with John Werlow. I've previously spoken about that podcast and the particular episode in question here, which I really liked. It was nice because it was a little bit of a departure from the norm where we have the whole sale. And this was episode 242 of that podcast with Josh Davis. And he talks about walking away from a deal. Okay, so we wanted to just cover off then the LOI and the due diligence process. And those two things then hopefully materialize in a purchase of a business. Sometimes a share sale, sometimes an asset sale. I've spoken about those things before on this podcast. The color for today's episode is green. The color for today's episode is green. Okay, let's hear what Eric has to say. Okay, joining me today is Eric Ma. Eric is a certified business evaluator with Galloway Associates, which is an accounting firm here in Edmonton. And I was excited to get the opportunity to bring Eric on the call. We talk about valuation a fair bit in the Certified Financial Planner course. And I thought it would be good to hear some of what a certified business evaluator does. So Eric, can you take a second and introduce yourself and maybe talk about the CBV certification as well? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. So um, like Jason said, uh, my name is Eric Ma and I'm working at Gallon Company Chartered Professional Accountants. 
Um, it is primarily an accounting firm, but we do valuations as well. Uh, a lot to do with the tax side of things. The CPV is a designation that you can get straight out of university. It's, um, it primarily dives deep into the valuation of businesses, sole proprietorships, and it also helps in litigation instances, uh, whether that's a fairness opinion on a deal and possibly also in the division of assets during a divorce. So uh, the CBB is a two-year program. That's kind of the long and short. When you say it's a two-year program, you're sort of working while you're doing it? That's right, yeah. So technically, um, the CBV Institute allows any member who is registered into the program to uh, sign off on their valuations and stuff like that, um, as long as the member is within scope of something that they can handle. So for example, somebody, a brand new CBV or brand new student would not endeavor in a high level, highly um, contentious litigation that would likely appear in court uh, simply because it would be a lot out of their scope. So it becomes sort of a self-selecting, is it a, a code of ethics or a standards of professional responsibility? What's the mechanism there? Yeah, that's a really good uh, question. Um, so the CBV in the beginning of 2018, I believe it was, began to institute uh, mandatory practice inspections. Um, which basically allows each person who signs off on any valuations and stuff like that to have their work uh, reviewed by the Institute to make sure that all aspects of documentation, actual work performed, engagement letters, liability, and all that stuff is on side. So it would be kind of like self, you would self-identify, I suppose, like, and, and with respect to the work. I guess the logic would be if you're smart enough and you and you have the right documentation and you've got it uh, got all the right stuff, you can prepare it. Most of the risk does surround um, litigation, however. So, for example, a a business valuation that is prepared for a small business looking to sell shares or um, a small business doing a tax reorg, those ones won't necessarily be as high risk as you would say um, one that would appear in front of a court. So if you go to court, and I would assume that family law would be the most likely example of going to court, although I'm sure sometimes in USA disputes, is it sort of one CBV against the other? Is that what happens? Yeah, so that's, that's a really good question. In some, sen in some senses, it really is one CBV versus another, but generally CBVs are hired on as expert witnesses, somebody who uh, can attest to, say, value or anything like that. So in a shareholder dispute where one valuator prepares a value, other the fair market value for a set of shares, another CBV could cross-examine and be held as an expert witness to determine whether or not that person actually did their due diligence. So you're working in public practice. You work for an accounting firm whose specialty is public practice. What sort of engagements would you normally have as a business valuator? Yeah, for sure, definitely. Our most common valuation instances are purchases and sales of businesses. Um, that's very frequent for us. Uh, we have lots of clients looking to purchase and lots of clients looking to sell their businesses. Um, so that's primary, number one. And then the second one would be reorgs, um, specifically, or evaluations and reorgs for um, tax purposes. Uh, within that scope, uh, one of the ones would be fair market value of shares on death, um, estate planning, essentially. Um, and the other one would be succession planning, figuring out whether kids want to be in the business and, and stuff like that. So can we talk about the sale to a third party for starters? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So in an engagement like that, I mean, ultimately a business is only worth what somebody will pay for it, right? 
That's right. So is it that you're helping a potential buyer and or seller kind of get a starting point for that conversation? Is that what it is or yeah for sure and you're 100 right the price that you pay for a business almost never equals to the fair market value of that business um mainly the primary reason is because there are things behind the scenes that the evaluator at the time will not know because of the circumstance of just not knowing so for example you may own a business that sells widgets and i also own a business that sell with sells widgets but I'm looking to get rid of my business. I don't know that you have that business and that you know that I'm doing really well in this instance. And so you have a synergy with my business that even the evaluator may not necessarily know. And so as a result of that, you might say, well, even if I can pay a 5% premium on that business from what the fair market value is, I'm okay with that. So that alone right there, if you didn't know that that was the instance or that was the case of the circumstance, you wouldn't be able to adjust your fair market value for that specific instance. So that's kind of one of the reasons why uh, the price never really equals to the fair market value, but it does get the conversation going. Sometimes business owners are, are very invested in their businesses and, you know, oftentimes emotions can get in the way. A lot of times what I see is you get business owners who are, who are really passionate about their businesses and, and they love, and they really want to see a, a certain number. They really want to see that that you know million dollars, two million, or whatever that number might be. But sometimes buyers just won't pay that amount, or the fair market value may not actually be what the mind perceives it to be. And that's sort of where the the evaluator fits into the sale, like um, acquisitions and divestitures, is is getting that conversation going and assisting with that on the sale side. That that's sort of where that comes in. On the buy side, we, we kind of open up a little bit more to say, well, this is what the fair market is based on what we can see on the financials, discussion with the inquiring, but it also leads into due diligence and looking at the actual numbers and stuff like that to analyze like cash flow, uh, AR turnover and other numbers. So when you sit down with a business owner, I'm not sure if it's you or if this would come from one of the accountants who's sort of the public facing role, but you, you have an engagement sit down with the business owner. That business owner has a valuation in mind. They're, they're thinking their business is worth $2 million. And you sit down and you do the valuation and you get to like 1.4 or something like that. How do you package that up? Do you know that that person is going to take that a certain way? Or is there is there some way you present that to somebody to say, look, here's what I come up with on paper and you know it might not match your expectations? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, oftentimes what happens is we generally try to sit the owner down and have them sort of understand where the valuation comes from. It's easier for people to grasp that the fair market value is based on certain analysis, uh, certain assumptions, and um, the circumstances surrounding given, you know, like industry trends, um, the economy availability of purchasers like you know how how difficult it would be to buy and sell so it in a sense it is a little bit of convincing to try to reconcile that emotional side where the business owner believes this is a number and the fair market value side but the nice thing is generally when people do ask for evaluation they may have a number in mind but oftentimes they are comfortable with understanding that proper due diligence has been done on the numbers to get to a uh, an actual quantifiable figure so how specific do you get here in terms of 
beyond just sector, but let's say for just the sake of an easy to understand or something people identify with restaurants, right? So have you done, I'm not sure, restaurant work, for example? Yeah, we've done some restaurant work for sure, yeah. So when you're doing multiples or when you're doing valuations on a restaurant, for example, as a trained professional in this area, is it like this kind of restaurant? Let's say I'm looking at, I don't know, three or four locations in mall food courts versus a place that's sit down and eat sort of pub slash diner type of thing. Does your practice there sort of inform a different type of multiple or different inputs for those two? Or is it sort of a restaurant is a restaurant and the numbers kind of go into the pot and spits back out evaluation? For sure. Yeah. Um, So the long and short of that is the multiple is not I think oftentimes lots of accountants and lots of people use the term multiple because it's very easy to understand the in fact truth of how the multiple comes to be is a combination of multiple things like how easy or how difficult it is to earn money in a specific sector or just on the market. Like the risk-free rate is what it's called. Basically Um, the risk-free rate being like the the cheapest, the, the lowest amount of money you can possibly make from an investment that basically has 0% risk, which happens to be our government bonds. Um, uh, it's called the build-up method where you take that amount and then you take factors related to the industry. The industry, the size of the company, the area that they're, area that they're working in, the state of the economy. We use professional judgment in order to hone in on different parts of this factors of how the multiple comes to be. And the difference between, say, you often find that there are certain valuators who will engage in only specific industries, which makes a lot of sense because the more you do in one industry, the, the more likely you are able to understand exactly the nuances and how much the multiple, multiple is going to be. On a very small business scale, the multiple, not that the multiple doesn't matter because the multiple does matter, it changes the value quite significantly, but it becomes a little bit more of an art than it does become a science simply because there are a lot more differences between one restaurant of the same industry and another restaurant in that same industry. In a perfect world, you'd be able to analyze the differences between those two, and it would be easy to to figure out what the multiple should be between the two. However, business owners are going to be business owners, and the way they prepare their accounting records and all that stuff affects how accurate your multiple is going to be, or how much personal goodwill, the, the amount that that business owner provides to the the restaurant takes into account as well. So for example, if you have a restaurant where um, it's got a great location, but the owner is just terrible, like the owner does like works there every day, but doesn't provide an environment that they, people want to come into. In theory, the good location should add more to the multiple. It should make it a more, I guess, attractive business, but the person doesn't add as much. So there's a lot of factors when, especially when you get into small businesses that affect the valuation. And the further up you go, the more simple it gets. That's kind of the opposite of what you'd expect, right? For sure. Yeah. You'd think as the bigger the business is, the more complex it is. It's more so primarily because there's just a lot more data on large businesses. Valuations is a numbers game. It's very much a, uh, when you get to the bigger, bigger um, companies, it's, it's about what what information is out there and there is lots. Yeah. I mean, if you look at like publicly traded companies, valuations, there are, you know, every bank is pretty much the same PE, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Now you mentioned the concept of goodwill and this is something 
when we briefly cover evaluations in financial planning curriculum, students always pick up on goodwill, right? You really talked about a situation where the goodwill is negative, right? That's if the business owner isn't contributing. Yeah. In that case, if I'm buying that business that has that sort of negative goodwill, how does that differ from a business owner who is like the face of the business and really, you know, people come in and they want to see that person and, and you see that like, you know, businesses that have really good local media coverage, that kind of thing. So, so where do those two things differ? With respect to goodwill, it's really important to remember where the goodwill comes from. The source is very, very important. Um, with the case of, say, the business owner who's looking to sell the business, but also provides a lot of positive goodwill, a lot of positive personal goodwill, when, you sell, when that person sells the business to you, you're not getting that personal goodwill. That person will likely take that goodwill with them. So you might find, and those are the figures that um, can affect the business, how much of the goodwill is actually related to something that you can transfer over. For example, media coverage, like you mentioned, like advertising, good social media presence, stuff like that. That stuff can carry over into the next business owner. Whereas if the original business owner is the person who um, holds all the goodwill, the value may not be as high. So it should actually, in a case where there's a lot of personal goodwill, the value of the business should actually be less because you can't reasonably expect to make as much money when you acquire the business because the person who in theory makes all the money is no longer there. Yeah, it's perfect. I do think it's a little bit counterintuitive and especially like I work in a very relationship oriented industry where you want that personal goodwill day in and day out to make dealing with customers easier, but it's that trade-off if you're ever selling your business, right? Yeah, definitely. So on the uh, the buy side then, so occasionally you'll also have an engagement where you're helping somebody to acquire a business. That's right, yeah. In a case like that, are you involved with, like, right from helping to get a rough idea, right through due diligence and so forth, right through to the ultimate acquisition? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we just recently closed up a, a deal not too long ago where I participated from the very beginning, figuring out what the value of the company is all the way through to the due diligence of you know, getting into the numbers on the financials, in a sense, it was really touching on both designations, you know, getting into the actual valuation side of the business, and then touching on the audit side of, um, you know, the accounting, trying to get into the numbers and analyzing and stuff like that. Yeah, so we start with the valuation that kind of takes us to the point where we can sit down with the purchaser and say, okay, so this is what we think that the value should be like, this is kind of what the range should look like. And then from there, we can talk about, you know, different strategies on whether we want to pursue with this, comparing that to what the seller is offering and such like that. From there, then if they like if they like the numbers that they see, if it seems like it's a good business, then we go from the valuation to an LOI. And then the LOI just goes right into our due diligence. Part of the valuation, even though uh, we don't actually do it in the valuation, we kind of take a look at the actual numbers on the financial statement saying, hey, like based on the financial statements they gave us and the valuation, it doesn't look like inventory has changed that much. That can be an issue, um, more so a red flag, not, not a problem, more so to say that are they really actually adjusting their inventory numbers like appropriately? Because obviously there's different levels of financial statements that you can get and how much you can trust those financial statements can really change the numbers that you, you end up with. So I've been running a small business for whatever it is now, 15 years or something. And we've always just done notice to reader financial statements. You know, would that kind of thing be a problem when it comes to an acquisition, for example? 
not necessarily a problem. Most people really only have notice to read or financial statements. So there are uh, there are a good handful of people who require review or an audit. Uh, the people who require reviews and audits, generally you're going to find that you can add more trust to those financial statements. Having that level of assurance allows you to find comfort in classification, uh, accuracy numbers, um, and, and stuff like that with a notice to read it or NTR. For an NTR, we generally find that, not that you can't trust the numbers, but notice to readers aren't necessarily always prepared by chartered professional accountants. But there is some things to be mindful of when we go in them. Uh, not so much that it's a problem, just something to be wary of when we go into them, just to say like, okay, have we ever done, have we ever seen these types of this, this um, accountant's financials before? Or is it something that like, are these people chartered professional accountants? Was it prepared in-house? Did they just do it themselves? Like is, are the numbers directly from like QuickBooks? Cause sometimes people will just provide you with, financial statements directly from their accounting software, not even looked at by accountant at all. And that's where the due diligence comes in to say, okay, well, how much of this is accurate? Like, what are these numbers? Can I trust these numbers? I mean, I'll vouch for that. I'm always a little wary about what I see in QuickBooks. That certainly leaves some questions sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Now, what would be sort of the smallest valuation where an engagement with somebody like yourself would be practical? Do you have a scope for that? I would say a tax valuation in general would be something to be mindful of that a reasonable, a reasonable attempt must be made in order to determine the fair market value. Having said that, once you get to, I don't know, say a company that might be around the $500,000 range um, or even $300,000 range, as soon as the value gets creeps up to around that area, it's always good to engage somebody with at minimum a background in valuations in order to make sure you're on side and making reasonable attempts to get that fair market. I would say anything less than that would be, the risk would still be there. It's, I mean, I suppose it's always there, uh, especially with CRA, but um, in a tax <laughs> tax driven uh, valuation, it's a little bit easier because the numbers you play with are so much smaller, uh, regardless of the valuation. Sometimes the, the value won't change by that much. It's more so when you get up to the higher numbers where value change is quite significantly based on the adjustments that it's good to be mindful. Yeah, CRA is sort of looking for a value, like not to say this the wrong way, but CRA doesn't care about your value on June 30th so much. They care about your value sort of over a couple of years, right? That's right, yeah. Particularly when you get into the smaller businesses, people often, I can appreciate that some people might think like, oh, well, you know, like, this is what it looked like on June, like you said, June 30th. This is what my value is. But would CRA view that as a reasonable attempt to determine the fair market value? Uh, based on valuation principles, probably not. Probably not due to how much work goes into the normalization, uh, the development of the, like the balance sheet, like normalizing even the balance sheet, the income statement, uh, getting that multiple down right, and so on and so forth. So I assume a CRA valuation or a tax valuation would be most important. I'm trying to think of other scenarios, but where you're doing non-arm's length transaction. So kids buying the business, bringing your spouse in as a shareholder. Would there be others that I'm missing there that would be obvious income tax motivated? Yeah, valuation on death for the purposes of using up your lifetime capital gains exemption. That's a really important one. That's one you probably don't want to Generally, that's that's more so important because you don't want to have all that that emotional um, trauma, especially like come back up when you get that letter that says we're taking a look at your evaluation for this the value of your shares, and that can be that can be tough. 
Yeah, and especially it could very well be your executor who is dealing with that, your your survivors, not not even you there to deal with it, right? For sure, definitely, yeah. And do you work with the financial planner or insurance folks at all in questions like that? Is that something that would be part of your scope? No, we don't actually do much with insurance company. You would be talking about more so stuff like determination of like life insurance benefits and, and such like that. No, we don't really do many that way, more so because insurance people, I believe, have like their own set of guys that take care of that valuation. Ours would be primarily your tax-driven valuations and then also purchases and sales. Yeah, I mean, certainly the valuation of a life insurance policy itself is an actuarial function, but I was thinking more so, you know, you sit down with somebody, the lifetime capital gains exemption is going to chew up a good chunk of their obligations at death, but there's still going to be, you know, a couple million dollars of value there. So you do all your accounting magic and you figure out what the actual cost of dying is going to be for that person. That's where I'm wondering about dealing with that. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, to date, we haven't really prepared much in that aspect, though it would not be out of scope. That makes sense. Thanks. Okay. What about other sorts of engagement? So from the tax perspective, obviously that's important. Buy and sell of businesses, that's important. What about, say, employee stock or employee option plans? Is that a place where you get involved too? We don't really do too much on that. In the small to medium, the small business uh, side of things, generally people aren't offering that many stock option plans. Um, and generally, once you get to the size that requires annual valuations to get stock option plans put together, it would be a little bit of an undertaking, to be honest. Um, uh, generally, we don't get into anything like that from there's maybe a couple companies that are smaller that prepare stock option plans for their employees. But for the most part, I haven't really seen many small companies that do that. And do you find then that companies that are sort of big enough to do that, would they do it in-house? Would like the CFO do the valuation there or would it still be outsourced, but to a specialist? Yeah, generally they would probably be outsourced more so because I'm hesitant to use the word risk, but I'll use it anyway. Um, the risk of getting it wrong or risk of not having a good number being held with a CFO is likely not the position that the employees would want to be in. So generally that would be outsourced in some manner, um, more so for the independence factor. If a CFO prepares the value of the business, arguably the employees might wonder, well, are you <laughs> overstating the business? Are you trying to suck more money from us? Are you trying to make it seem like, you know, like uh, these shares are worth more or less? Or, or are you changing? Or is there an inherent bias? So generally that would be something to outsource. Yeah, certainly if I was an employee in that case, I would want some arm's length involvement there. For sure, definitely. Now, what about family law cases? Have you done any of these? Have you done work with family lawyers who needed valuations? Yeah, I've done a couple. They're not necessarily that frequent for us. In the number that I have done, those ones can be a little bit more contentious and do take a lot more time. They involve you know, speaking with a lot of the lawyers and then the delays between getting content and, and stuff from one lawyer to the other lawyer from the client. These engagements can run a long time, but they are a little bit more, I use the word contentious, but it's also very um, time consuming in that you really need to comb through the numbers and there's a lot of back and forth. But in the number that I've done, yeah, generally they use a higher and more detailed engagement. If you're not familiar with valuations, there's, or specifically the valuation of the fair market value, there's three levels of 
uh, of a report. There is a calculation and an estimate and a comprehensive. Generally, when you get into a into litigation support, it's generally considered the best course of action to use an estimate. Um, and lots of people have found that the estimate is the primary report to use when you're looking at litigation support. And very few instances would you ever see a comprehensive. A comprehensive could be most akin to an audit for financial statement purposes. Okay. And what would I expect to spend on, let's say, a family business succession type of question? Do you have a sense for that, Eric? Generally, when you're looking at valuations, the baseline is generally about 3500 and that always climbs up depending on the complexity and size of the engagement, whether it's an increasing number of companies that need valuations where the corporate structure is more complex, that can generally run you up a little bit higher of a bill. And the second part would be how detailed or how much assurance is needed on the engagement there's three levels of engagements, a calculation, an estimate, and a comprehensive report. You can kind of compare that to how much you would spend on a notice to reader or a review or an audit for a financial statement. I think that most people will kind of understand that for their financial statements, but that, that's generally how much you would expect to spend. That's really helpful. I think it is good for the folks listening to have a rough idea anyways of what their client's in for if they're going to recommend the use of you know professional valuation right for sure definitely yeah i did not know that about the calculation yeah i think a lot of people just rely on the calculation report for most small business valuations merely because it's a little bit easier it's a little bit simpler more straightforward you get the job done a lot sooner whereas if you go into something like an estimate report what you're going to find is there's a lot of background research that you have to do on the industry, economic trends, SWOT analysis even. You go as detailed as to do a SWOT analysis of the company. And so it's very comprehensive. And you can imagine that work is not like, it doesn't just happen overnight. That work actually takes some time. And so it does really run up the bill a little bit. Yeah. And you would be getting so much information from the business owner. That would be a real intensive exercise for that person, right? Or for their management team? Yeah, exactly. You have to sit down and actually really understand the business and the industry. So it does get more expensive with an estimate. Um, and like I said, comprehensive, like very few people actually even endeavor to do a comprehensive unless absolutely necessary. So once you have an LOI, essentially everything is locked down, right? Like there's no more public, no more, you're not discussing that with most of your management team, probably, right? You're sort of constrained. So if I go through the valuation process beforehand, you know what I mean? Does it give you an advantage in dealing with the LOI? Generally, we always include in the LOI that there's a, um, you know, that sufficient due diligence, like here's our price, given that sufficient due diligence has been prepared um, and, and so on, right? So there's different clauses that we always add in to make sure that we're a little, we're, for the most part, pretty on side, but um, it definitely gives us an edge because if you can get a valuation done, it cuts down the time on, you know, the back and forth, right? Well, what about this price? What about this? What about that? What about this, right? And so that really saves the time and it really helps the clients because a lot of our clients are super busy. They got lots going on. Uh, they don't want to have to sit there and uh, and piddle over like $100,000 or whatever the number may be. They just want to get a good baseline, somewhere to start, something that can back up the price so they can move forward. So working with the person who's going through a marital breakdown and has to get their business valued, I would imagine sometimes that's not a terribly motivated participant in the process. And how does that sort of compare? Like if you're selling your business, you want this all done, right? I guess it works in twofold. Generally, by the time you actually need to get a valuation done, 
um, most people will have it either court ordered or lawyers are involved. So the motivation is more the stick than it is the carrot in that instance. But in that in, in, in litigation support, the stick is the only way to, to get to the end of the engagement. So in those cases, is the lawyer your client? Is that really how it works? Like the lawyer is writing a check to, to Gallo and company, or is it the, the person going through the breakdown? What's the engagement look like there? That's a really good question. In the ones that we've prepared, um, it's often been the lawyer has been our contact. Uh, the lawyer has been on all invoices. They, they are our client essentially uh, because they require our services in order to determine the fair market value for the purposes of the matrimonial take breakdown. In almost all instances, I don't talk. So the ones that we've prepared are primarily a dispute on the value of an ex-husband's companies and they believe that his income is is much higher than he's been reporting on his his personal taxes so they request evaluation or it's called an income guideline and our contact and our client is the lawyers okay you're even trying to show that there's money being deliberately left in the business or value being deliberately left in the, like that kind of thing would show up in there? I'm hesitant also to use the word deliberately only because it's not necessarily that um, they're deliberately trying to hide the money. It's a tax planning maneuver in order to reduce the amount of personal taxes that a person would pay year over year, which it makes sense. Um, but then oftentimes you get one very business savvy spouse and the other spouse who just doesn't really get involved in the business, doesn't have that knowledge of how taxes and how businesses work. And so oftentimes they, they question like, how, well, how can I have a Bentley if he only reported $50,000 on his taxes? Or, you know, like, how do we live like, you know, in Laurier when, like, when this is all that shows up on our taxes, right? Like, so those questions, those, those basic understandings of uh, income spark the conversation to say, well, I don't think that they earn that much. So then it would be the the object of the evaluator to go through and determine based on whatever number of companies how much cash is actually available to that person yeah and i'm not suggesting hide money i agree there can be numerous reasons why you're leaving money in your business right that's yeah absolutely so i know that you work for a public accounting firm do most of your engagements come from the CPAs who are out there dealing with small business owners, or do you get people who strictly just need evaluation? They have no other dealings with Gallo. They just come straight to you? Most of our tax-driven valuations are generally in-house. We have had a number of clients from Northwest Territories who just found our website and noticed that we do this kind of work, approach us for those purposes. Uh, yeah, that's, that's actually quite interesting, really. Uh, we had one client the Northwest Territories who found our website and they really liked the work that we did on their tax-driven valuation and then referred us to to other clients who are looking to acquire businesses in the Northwest Territories and we did the valuations for those. Usually for tax-driven, they're internal. If it is a buy or sell, usually sell side is internal, buy is oftentimes external. And I am assuming that reform market would be pretty strong here. Would that be accurate, like your NWT story? The referral market does help quite a bit. Um, it does really, like, always, it generally leads back, and especially given a Northwest Territories area where, uh, I mean, even the Chartered Professional accountant, Accountants in the Northwest Territories are either too far away to drive there or um, there's just not that many. So, yeah, like, the referral market is quite strong. That makes sense. So the certified business evaluator certification is 
still, I guess, relatively new. I think that's fair. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, uh, in, I mean, obviously, in comparison to the age of accounting, like, and how old <laughs> like, that really dates back to the, the CIC um, is quite new. I believe it's around 50 to 30 to 50 years old. So the actual designation is still quite new. And how many folks would there be in a city the size of Edmonton doing what you do, sort of doing, you know, public facing valuations? I think as of now, most of your major accounting firms will have a valuations department um, in the city. I believe across Canada, it's 100,000, maybe. I think it's less than 100,000 CBVs, um, but in Edmonton, I, you could call it 1,000 maybe. Oh, really? Okay. I'm surprised at that many. It feels like I don't run into that many of you yet. So A lot of CBVs get trapped up or not trapped up. They go into private equity where the primary goal for a lot of CBVs is to just deal with private equity. So they you lose a lot of those guys into that field and the remainder just generally either that's pretty actually pretty much pretty well where like most of my, uh, I guess most of my colleagues have gone to is private equity. Okay, that's interesting. I never even really drew that connection. I've always thought about it from the financial planning side, I guess, more so, right? Not the investment side so much. So if you make that move into private equity, are you dealing with then uh, larger firms? The entities that you're actually evaluating would be larger firms typically? And not necessarily always. It, generally, they do work on a little bit larger uh, clients, more so because they're not looking to buy really small firms. Uh, we do have some clients who have I guess we do do the, some of the accounts here prepare um, financials for some private equity clients um, and they're not necessarily that large, uh, but it all depends on what exactly the private equity group is trying to acquire. Essentially just knowledge of the industry, uh, whether it's, you know, pet food or if it's like some kind of oil and gas industry items. That's interesting. Do you have any last minute thoughts about the role of the certified business evaluator or how a business evaluator might work with financial advisors or financial planners. Anything you can share there, Eric? I think one of the major ways that evaluators get involved with your financial planners is specifically to determine the size of or the size of the wealth within a corporation. Uh, now anyone can prepare evaluation, but to get it to an accurate degree, to get accurate planning down so that the appropriate steps can be taken to preserve wealth in the most tax efficient method would be to engage evaluator. Okay, perfect. Well, that's great. Have a great one, Eric. Okay, bye. All right, lots there. And Eric got me outside of my comfort zone a little bit. I like that. I got to learn a little bit in this episode. I've got a couple of these lately and a couple upcoming where I have uh, subject matter experts who have a lot to teach. And I really appreciate that. There's no better experience than learning. The number for today's episode is seven. The number for today's episode is seven. Now, we heard Eric talk about the fact that business owners often overestimate the value of their business. This is an important concept, and it's not unique to businesses. This is a fundamental behavioral finance topic. The effect we see here is called the endowment effect. And the endowment effect is the idea that I will ascribe a higher value to something when I own that thing than I would if I were buying it from somebody else. 
And there's a bunch of good research around this. Dan Ariely has a good study on this where he used concert tickets for a concert that was not particularly in demand, sort of a campus concert, and found that people, once they held a ticket to that concert in hand, once they were given a concert ticket for a particular concert, that value of that ticket was about triple what they had previously indicated they would be willing to pay for it. So that's the endowment effect. And we see this with people's homes. If you ask somebody which is the most valuable house on their block, they'll think about all their sweat equity and home renovations. We see this with sometimes people's investment holdings where they're not necessarily willing to sell. And I think this gets reinforced sometimes by some of the messaging we have as financial advisors where we say a loss isn't a loss until we crystallize that loss. And that can, I think, enforce a little bit of endowment effect, the idea that it's a mistake to sell something because we could be crystallizing a loss. Well, sometimes it does not make sense to hold something in a portfolio any longer. Sometimes an investment has served its purpose, and sometimes it has a dismal future, although hard to look forward to that. We have to have the working crystal ball to sort of recognize that. But sometimes it is just necessary to sell something. And the endowment effect can hinder that. This is where we overvalue that thing. Now, there is a little bit of evolutionary psychology at work with the endowment effect as well. The concern here from an evolutionary perspective is that rewind whatever three or 4,000 years and longer, it was often the case that you would have worked hard to gather the thing that you're now holding and it would actually be more work to go and find a new version of that than it would be to give up the thing that's in hand. This is different than the concert ticket, but our brains are wired to say, well, to get that concert ticket, I had to put in so much work and that work has value. Even if that's not true, even if you were gifted the concert ticket or found it, if you, you know, put on your jacket and you realize, oh yeah, I bought that thing before, I'd completely forgotten about it, even then, our brains are sort of wired to say, I put some work into this and therefore it has more value than another thing like it that somebody else owns. Okay, we touched on the concept of insurance valuation in here. Eric said, that's not really my forte and he's right about this. Normally what's gonna happen is if you ever need an insurance policy valued, that's gonna be done by usually an independent actuarial firm. It's generally not a service that your insurers will provide. They'll usually say you go to this independent actuary or go find yourself an independent actuary. I know a bunch of the managing general agencies have relationships with those independent actuaries. There is a set of standards developed by CRA in an old information circular 89 revision 3 and it gives some principles around the valuation of a life insurance policy. It's very similar to what Eric's job is, except that you're dealing with this more constrained asset, just this one asset. The difference is that when you're valuing a business, you're normally valuing the business on its potential to generate cash flow. When you're valuing a life insurance policy, what you're basically doing is considering two things. First off, what's the value of the death benefit? So this really becomes sort of a time value of money calculation. 
And the other thing we consider with a life insurance policy is how hard would it be to replace that policy? So if you have somebody who owns an insurance policy that we can no longer buy, for example, we see a bunch of policies sold in the mid 2000s that had fairly generous fixed income, guaranteed rates of return, or we see policies that have tax status grandfathered, whether that's a pre-1982 policy, which would be very rare today, or a pre-2017 policy, which of course there's tons of out there. Those considerations would go into the valuation of the policy. We'd have to compare that to the ability to buy a similar policy today. There are a few other factors, but those are the two big ones, is what would it take to replace the policy and what's the death benefit the policy will eventually provide. And by the way, when we talk about what it would take to replace the policy, that also takes into account underwriting concerns. If you have somebody who's been recently declined on another application for insurance or has recently had a serious health concern, that will increase the value of their policy. And that becomes material in quite a few cases. Normally, when we're just dealing with the types of valuations that Eric would do, if you're looking at an in-force insurance policy held within a corporation, the valuation is just reliant on the cash surrender value of the policy. We really only have to do a fair market valuation for a policy that's changing hands when the corporation is moving it to a shareholder, for example, or when a shareholder is moving a policy to a corporation. Those transactions used to be more common than they are. They're quite expensive from a tax perspective, so you don't see much of that done anymore. We also have to do that valuation when donating an enforced policy to a charity. If it's a newly issued policy, then it's just donated at its cash surrender value, but where it's donated to a charity, where you've got a policy that was acquired some time ago, we have to go to the actuary and get that valuation done. In case of separation, this is a little bit of a murkier concept. Sometimes in a marital breakdown, we're gonna value a policy based on cash surrender value. And sometimes in a marital breakdown, we're going to value a policy based on its fair market value. And there's a whole bunch of complexity to that. That's really one that's best left to the family lawyer to help navigate. There's some provincial variations there. It's quite a difficult process, in fact. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also, you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there, and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits, they say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need. 
including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now, or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, thanks very much for joining us for this episode. Happy to have Eric join us. And I want to encourage you to think about developing a relationship with a certified business evaluator. I think there are many cases where your client would benefit from this. Or, as Eric talks about, there are cases where people have to use that certified business evaluator. And he talks about somebody just going on the web and finding them. If this is your client, I think it would be far better where you say, hey, I've got this person. I met them a few times. I've talked to them about their business. This is who you could use for your valuation rather than, well, why don't you just Google it and see what happens, which, I mean, if those people happen to Google and find Eric and they get a good service, great. But things so much better for the financial advisor to be prepared to guide their client to a referral where everybody understands. And you want to have that dialogue with that valuator as well. You want to be able to talk to that person about what's happening. As Eric talked about here, many of the cases when we'd be doing evaluation will have a strong overlap with financial planning. Join us again in two weeks' time. In two weeks, we're going to have Lori Power on the podcast. Lori is a group benefits rep. And actually, by the time that episode airs, I'll have been a guest on Lori's show. Let's talk about Shift. And I'll put in a plug for it there accordingly. But Lori's had some really good guests on. And then she'll have me. So again, join us in two weeks and we'll talk group benefits with Free Power. Thanks so much. Okay, a few people uh, help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong does music and production. Marjorie Lewis produces continuing education certificates when the machine doesn't. Maria Nguyen does all of our continuing education approvals. Desiree Kalinchuk and Penny Watt take care of our marketing. Make sure that there are people listening to the podcast. <laughs>